One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And welcome. I am your host, Emigrant Awardner, and in my nearly 20 year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors. And many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered. And at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you. Whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Liz Bohannon. Liz is an experienced entrepreneur, the founder of the socially conscious brand Seiko Design and the host of the Plucking Up podcast. Liz has achieved great success, but that doesn't mean the journey there was easy. And as Liz explains in the show, she even had a spell living in her car as she made her way towards where she is today. Liz focuses on having purpose, being passionate and having an impact But I think what I was really struck by and what really stayed with me from our conversations is how sometimes what we say and what we do don't always align. And if you don't catch yourself, you can end up coasting or not getting any closer to where you want to be. So we might say that we want to earn more money, lose weight, learn a new skill, those sorts of things. But then we don't act on any of those things in a way that would get us any closer to the goal. We also talk in this episode about something I've really noticed, which is an obsession with success stories. I think it's sort of an obsession, if you will. I call it success porn. So it's actually how we can get so enamored by all these huge, incredible stories of just absolutely gobsmacking success. And if someone is hugely successful and they share the failures they've encountered along the way, they are telling them from the perspective of a successful person. And that's not actually how failure feels when it's happening to you. And what Liz tries to do, what she does on her podcast, is really get into the mindset of what it was really like when things were bleak so that you can really help people to get out of whatever situation they might be in that they want to remove themselves from. Liz and I also agree on another thing, actually, which is that self-help isn't always helpful. In fact, a lot of self-help perpetuates a narrative that creates fear, anxiety, and a mental and emotional cocoon that isn't always helpful. How does the saying go? There's no progress in your comfort zone. I think we both agreed very much on that one. So there's a lot to get through in this show, and we discussed a huge amount. So in this episode, we talk about acting out of fear versus living in a growth mentality. We talk about the advice that Seth Godin gave her that changed everything. Why having a passion fundamentally means suffering for something. Whether it's right to expect your passion to pay your bills why it's important to think about how you can make the world better for yourself, but also for others, and why you have to overcome your own ego and admit when you've screwed up to really make significant progress. I really enjoyed chatting to Liz. I loved her perspective, and I really enjoyed hearing her story and getting to see the world through her eyes, and I really hope that you do too. Obviously, all the links to Liz, her book, her podcast will be in the show notes, but for now, please join me in welcoming Liz Bohannon to The Emma Gunn Show. Welcome to the podcast, Liz Bohannon. How are you? I'm so good and I am so delighted to be with you today, Emma. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. You are a wife, mom of two, social entrepreneur, podcaster, speaker, and a fellow podcaster, I should say as well. And you have a brilliant story and one that really, really got my attention. <laughs> Um, because actually we talk a lot on this podcast about success, about dreaming big, about, um, going after your passion, Mm -hmm. because I guess 
our parents' generation, it was all about security, getting the house, getting the family, laying roots. And then our generation have kind of been thrown the dream of, well, do that, but via your passion. And you've got some brilliant insights on why that might not be the way to go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I come in, I kind of sound like a, uh, a dream killer or a wet blanket, but that's very far it's very far from the truth. I am so, um, I am so, I love what you're doing with your show because your vision for helping people live into their gifts, find something that they care about, find something that helps them come alive, um, build a sense of purpose and passion and impact into their everyday. Uh, it's such a passion of mine as well. And, and I will say, I feel like I'm, I've built a life where I'm doing that. But along the way, over the last 10 years, I feel like I've learned a lot about about that journey. And I'm starting to like feel like a lot of the kind of common self-help inspirational messages that we're telling people, they're not helping them get to where they want to go. Not only are they not helping them, they're actually kind of destructive. And they're contributing to a lot of like narratives that I think are actually creating a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety in people, um, which is the exact opposite of where you want to be if you're out to build a life of purpose and passion and impact. And so it really was born out of my own journey. I kind of, I, I really do feel like I pretty early on in my vocation was able to kind of tap into the sense of, okay, here's where like my skills are. And here's where this thing that I desperately care about, here's where they kind of align. And I even started noticing in myself a few years into that journey, how I talked about how I had like found my passion. Uh, it wasn't very authentic. And it left other people feeling more anxious. Like she did it. She found it. I'm behind. How'd she do it? There was some mystical thing that happened. And I got this sense from people. I didn't feel like I was leaving rooms, um, leaving people more hopeful or more empowered than they were when I came in. And I was like, there's something wrong with this, with this narrative and the way that I'm telling this story and really dove into kind of the truthfulness of how I told my story and kind of came out on the other side of it with like, oh my gosh, we have it all wrong. We have it all wrong how we're talking about it. So a big part of my life, in addition to building my company and writing books and doing the things that you talked about, um, it all kind of aligns with that of, of trying to, um, help talk about this really important thing. How do we use our lives? in a way that creates purpose and impact, but in a way that's accessible and empowering and encouraging to folks. So that begs the question, how are you telling the story before? You know, okay. So I'll give you a little bit of a, um, I'll give you a little bit of a crash course into my, into my story that I was telling. Right. So I went to journalism school in undergrad. I went on to get my master's degree in journalism. I was really interested in issues that were facing women and girls living in extreme poverty and in conflict and post-conflict zones. So I kind of had this idea that I was going to be like, you know, this hard hitting investigative journalist, human rights journalist, traveling the world, you know, like telling stories and shedding light on, on like massive human rights issues and specifically through a gender equality lens. Well, I graduated from college with like no real life experience. I'd like never left the United States. Like turns out, you know, the New York times is like not very interested in, <laughs> in chatting with a 22 year old who's never left America to go to like Baghdad and start reporting, you know? So it was a big reality check for me. I like, Oh yeah, I have no skills. I have nothing to offer. Um, you know, I graduated from school and I needed a job. I had to start paying bills. So I got a job in kind of corporate America And just a few months into that job, I had this realization that I was like, you know what? There's this thing that you say you care about. You say you care about women living in global extreme poverty. And you know all of this stuff. You've read so many reports. You've written papers. You know the organizations that are addressing the issues. um, But you don't actually have a single friend who's been impacted by that on a personal level. Like you have all of this head knowledge, but like your life, your community, your friends, your relationships, none of it is touched by that. And that was like a real kind of moment of clarity for me of like, you know what, if I'm going to like keep saying I care about this thing, I need to make some decisions in my life 
that kind of close the Delta between what I say I, I care about and what my just actual day-to-day life look like. And so I, um, quit my corporate job, like three months in <laughs> very impressive. Um, and I while bought your, one- <laughs> while your bosses are going graduates. <laughs> so, absolutely. I was fulfilling every millennial stereotype three months into my first job, just being like quit one-way ticket, bought a one-way plane ticket to Uganda showed up in East Africa, didn't know anybody, had no idea what I was going to do. Really, the whole goal was just to make friends and to say like, okay, just build a life, build a community, start, have relationships with people that are different than you and have a different perspective and experience and kind of learn more about this issue kind of on the ground. And so, um, so I did that. So I showed up in Uganda and uh, started making friends, building relationships and ended up meeting an incredible group of young female scholars who were some of the top academically uh, talented women in the country, but who all came from backgrounds of extreme poverty. So what was happening is they were graduating from this really academically rigorous um, college prep program, basically. They were testing into university and then they couldn't afford to go. And so, you know, me and my like 23-year-old <laughs> naivete probably was like, okay, you know, here's 25 of the smartest girls in the entire country. Certainly we can do something. It can't be that hard, right? Like we can bridge the gap between high school and university so that they can continue on to college. Cause truly these are the type of women that you're like, we will all be better off if women like this are in leadership, just character, integrity, passion, amazing perseverance, beautiful vision for their, for themselves, for their communities, for their country, for our world. And you're just like, no, 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 we need these girls to continue on to university and be in places of leadership. And so, um, I started a little sandal company, long story short, it was like, I designed these strappy sandals. I had no interest in fashion, no interest in business, but at the time it was like, well, that none of that really matters. What matters is this problem that I'm trying to solve, right? How I solve it. I tried to start a chicken farm and that failed. And I tried all these different things and it it happened just to be sandals that worked. And so taught three young women, Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca. I was like, all right, ladies, here's the deal. If you make these sandals during your gap year. So in Uganda, there's a nine month gap between high school and college. So it was like, if you make these sandals for the next nine months, I promise that you'll go to college next year and I'll go, I'll go back to the U S and try to hawk some sandals, you know? And they were like, great. And I was like, cool. <laughs> and you know, we like made sandals for several months together. And I came back home to the United States and started selling sandals literally out of the back of my car, which is, you know, definitely what your parents want you doing with your master's degree in journalism <laughs> after you quit that job. Um, and then one thing led to another and 10 years later, we are a global, um, socially conscious fashion brand. So we have a, um, an amazing team in Uganda. We now work with, um, partners in Uganda and Ethiopia and Peru and India. We've enabled hundreds of women to continue on to college through this work study model. And then have created jobs for thousands of artisans across the globe who are making beautiful products, who are being treated fairly, who are earning a dignified wage. Um, and then we've built out this brand primarily in the United States. We have thousands of women here in the United States that sell the product. They earn an income. Uh, We're growing pretty quickly. So it's been this like amazing, amazing journey, this amazing ride. But to kind of go back to your question of, well, how did you talk about it? That was in a way that was wrong. There was a couple things that I was doing. One is I just said little things like, you know, when I was, I had, I've always been passionate about, um, gender equality and global extreme poverty. And it's like, always like I had this moment where I'm like, what does that mean? You've always been passionate about it. Like really, when you were a toddler, like in utero, this was the thing that you knew you were created to do, you know? And when I started actually like really evaluating it and really honestly looking at my story, because here's what, when we're on the other side of feeling like we've we found our thing, it's so easy for us to then see our past through the lens of where we are now. And like, oh, I'm picking out that part of the story and I'm highlighting it because it's a really good cohesive story. But what it does is it puts an unfair and, and dishonest like emphasis on what you knew at the time. Right. And so when I was like, no, when, when I was in university, yes, I cared about those things, 
I had no idea that's what I was going to give my life to. There were lots of things that I was interested in, a handful of things. This one particular thing ended up being the thread that continued, but only because of a series of like experiments and taking risks and like doing something. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Like I moved to Uganda and had no idea. I don't know. Am I going to build a family there? Am I going to be a journalist? Had no aspirations of being an entrepreneur. Um, But if we're not careful about our language, we tend to do that. And that leaves people that are kind of on the beginning part of their journey feeling like they're broken. They're messed up. They don't know what their one thing is. And in reality, the majority of people, 80% of people between the ages of 18 and 35, when you ask, like, do you have, do you know what your passion is, would say no. So it's like, that's a very, that is a very normal, common majority experience. There is nothing wrong with you because we don't find our passion. It's not something that just like magically appears. We build it. We build it. We experiment. We iterate. We follow interesting leads. Some are, some lead us to places where we're like, oh no, like who backtrack? Like that wasn't, that wasn't right. And we go back and we tweak. And, um, and I think when we have that mentality that actually passion is something we build, not something that we find, we're so much more equipped to actually move forward in that journey. It's so true. And it's that, that idea of what you were saying, looking back through the lens of sort of almost being the completed thing it's like you you painted a whole picture and now you're telling the story and everyone can see the whole picture but actually there was a time or a jigsaw piece when that you didn't know where it was going to fit you didn't know what even it was and that's all okay so and I find that really interesting because I feel like it takes the pressure off when we were like I said when we were growing up we had almost this thing of do what you love, do what you're passionate about. And I, for a long time, would look at friends who didn't do that and think, but you're missing out, you're missing out. And obviously they're not. But how did you then change how you were telling the story? And were you able to actually accurately go back and be able to look at things and remember exactly that feeling then? You know what I mean? Before you knew how the story finished. Yeah, that's a great question. So I ended up last year, I launched a book called beginner's pluck. And it's the whole book is that story. And it was me. It was my redo. It was like, okay, it, for years at this point, I had been speaking and telling my story in a way that there was a moment, as I mentioned, where I was like, I don't think this is the most authentic version of the story. And so I was like, if you're going to keep telling this story, you need to do some hard looking, trying to go back, trying to remember and put yourself in the place before you knew how it was going to unfold what were you thinking? How did it feel? What were the mentalities and mindsets that were not helpful? And what were the ones that actually were? And so in the process of writing a book, you really do, it's so, um, the kind of intellectual rigor of being like, okay, this is going to be out in the universe for forever. I want to make sure I believe it, (laughs) you know, like I want to make sure I'm going about this in the right way. And so I did a lot of just like, I mean, going back to old journals, going back to emails and like conversations, I am chats that I had with friends in like college. I mean, like so many things to try to help get me back there so that I could tell the story in a more authentic, like this is how it felt in that moment versus the like hindsight of the story and really came up with the 14 kind of principles, mentalities, mindsets that I really feel like are so incredibly helpful. And many of them are really counterintuitive to the common like self-help language. So things like you don't find your passion, that's not a thing. You can build it. Here's how you go about doing that. Really questioning the message of like dream big and how like overwhelming that could be to people and how much like anxiety that it can create. Um, One of my favorite concepts is it's called own your average. And it's all about like how this message, and I know like, especially for millennials, this kind of message that it's like, no, 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 you're really special. Like you're special. You're going to go change the world. All you need to do is just believe that you're actually really special, that you're smarter than you think you are, that you're more talented than you believe. And the whole mind game is about getting you to believe that you're above average. And then once you believe that, then you can go out and slay, you know? (laughs) And I think that that message is so wrong because, and one, it's just like, 
okay, this is just math, people. Like averages are a mathematical thing and not everybody can be above average because if they are, that's not, you know, it's like average literally is, a, you know, where the, the bulk myth, of yeah. us live. And recognizing that it's like when we own our average, when we are in a place where we can say, you know what, I might not be like intellectually gifted. I might not be God's gift to humanity. I might not be particularly talented in any one area. Um, that actually leads us to a growth mentality. Um, and that growth mentality, that subtle belief that it's like, hey, everything that I try, most likely because I'm pretty average, I'm going to have to suck for a while and I'm going to try it and I'm going to fail and I'm going to launch something into the universe and no one's going to buy it and no one's going to click on it and no one's going to read it and no one's going to come because I'm not good at it yet. And what I have to do when I experience that is go back to the drawing board and get really curious and kind of experiment a little bit and tweak and then put something else into the universe and see how people react to that. And it creates this like really iterative experimental um, mindset that's actually much more detached from your ego, right? Of like the thing that I create in the world isn't how people react to that thing is not an indication of my worthiness of my, whether or not I, you know, deserve to be loved and respected. Um, they're actually two completely different things. And when I believe that I then have the freedom to try and to fail and to risk and to experiment and to take wrong turns. And when I'm in the midst of something that it was a wrong turn of like, Oh, I tried that thing. And it was not for me. Um, if you have the mentality of like, well, if I'm special, I should just try it and it should work. Or my passion is this singular thing. And if I went down this path and it wasn't my passion, I've wasted this time and this energy. You start to panic. There's so much anxiety. It's like, I've wasted time. Now you're acting out of fear as opposed to having a growth mentality of being like, okay, cool. This wasn't the right path, but here, here's where I am. What did I learn from this? Like, what, what am I going to take away from this? It just changes everything. And to your point, it just totally lowers the stakes and it takes the heat off. And none of us do our best work out of fear and shame and anxiety. We all do our best work in ourselves and in the world when we feel a sense of freedom and security of like, hey, you're average. <laughs> you're going to suck at whatever you try for a while. Cool. Then you're going to get a little bit better. And then a little bit better and really dismissing this idea that it's just like, once you find your thing, it's going to be like magic and fireworks and everybody's going to respond in the way that you were hoping to. Um, and those are the narratives that we so often hear that I think contribute to a really unhealthy vision of what it looks like to go out and find your passion and do what you love. I've spoken to quite a few very successful entrepreneurs and business owners on this podcast before. And sometimes in their storytelling, it feels like, and the only sort of analogy I can think of is it feels like they're on the runway, then they take off. And then the majority of the story is them when they're, um, you know, at their chosen altitude. And it's kind of, I'm now going to move to a car analogy. It's kind of they're in cruise control. Yep. And the most exciting part of the journey for me is where they're on the when they're on the runway wow. and trying to take off. And uh, I'm sure regular listeners will have heard me say this before, but I tried a few projects when I first went freelance and they failed spectacularly, <laughs> partly because I was terrible at them. Yeah. And I took it very, very, very badly. Yep. And uh, it contributed it contributed to me feeling depressed and anxious and just I nearly quit everything yeah. and went to go and live back with my parents and I don't know I don't, don't know I have no idea but um that was where my head was going and somebody said to me the wor the worst people you can take advice from are people who have never failed and it's a bit like you were saying it was that switch that made me think failure is a stepping stone to success a hundred percent yep and that changes when you realize that one of the best things that ever happened to me are you familiar with Seth Godin He's a author, speaker, writer, thinker. He may have written some lovely words about your book. Uh, he did. He did. And I met Seth. So when I was, this was probably a year into launching Seiko, I was literally Emma. I was living in my car. 
did not have a home. Um, I was living in a Honda element. I was traveling the United States trying to get this brand off the ground. And I mean, I'm talking about, there was literally nothing glamorous about it. It was like, I was cold calling stores. I was hosting trunk shows in like crappy little coffee shops or, you know, church basements, literally wherever someone would be like, yeah, I'll get five people together to hear you do your spiel and, you know, sell some sandals, living out of my car, showering at truck stops, like eating, you know, brushing my teeth in McDonald's bathrooms in the morning. And I applied to be a part of this, um, this like one week MBA program that Seth Godin was hosting total, like moonshot. Like I'm a 22, I'm, I am literally living in my car trying to launch this business. I apply for this program and I get accepted to it. It's me and 10 other, maybe 12 other, other women from all over the world get accepted to this program. So of course I walk into this room and I'm like, which of these things is not like the others? <laughs> like, you know, women that are just like brilliant and accomplished and I'm so intimidated and I'm like, I literally live in my car right now and I make no money and my business is barely, I mean, you know, we were barely hanging on for many years, let alone the first year. But something that changed the trajectory of my business and of my life were some words from Seth Godin that he shared with me as he was just like, hey, you just do everything assuming it's going to take 100 attempts and you're going to get a hundred no's before you get your yes. And just like matter of factly, hundred no's for every one yes. And when you do that, when you walk into a situation, actually deeply believing that what ends up happening is that every time you get a no and every time you get rejected, there is a small part of you that is like, that's one less rejection. Like, okay, that was number 13. I'm like, okay, let's go. Let's go get 14, 15, because I'm getting closer and closer to that. Yes. Because I, I just went in with that mentality of knowing that doesn't mean I'm broken. That doesn't mean the thing that I'm trying to do is broken. It literally just means I need more practice. I need to iterate. I need to experiment a little bit more. And that changes everything as opposed to, right? Like I'm going to launch the thing and, and it's going to sell out. People are going to flock to it. I'm going to win a Pulitzer prize, whatever it is on my first go. Like, I'm sorry. How, like, how kind of narcissistic and like megalomaniac is that? Like, I think that so often we, as people think like, oh, I'm too insecure and I'm not like confident enough. We actually, I think a lot of times are struggling with an overinflated sense of ego. Um, this sense that, um, this, this sense that like, I should just do something once and people should respond to it. Like it's a work of magic or art or masterpiece. And it's just like, who do you think you are that you can, you think you're just going to be successful right out of the gate or our insecurities of like, well, I don't want to try and fail because that's so embarrassing. Right. And what if I say, what if I set this goal and then I don't do it? That's going to be humiliating. Well, that belief that you're going to try and fail and that people are going to look at you and know that you tried, know that you failed, and then form an opinion about you, that belief rests on the foundational belief that a lot of people are looking at you and care about what you're doing and are keeping track of your successes and failures. And it's like, bless, no one's thinking about you as much as you think they are. Like, we're all just in the universe trying to make it, you know, we're like trying to figure out how we're going to get from the board meeting to the soccer game, what we're going to have for dinner, our careers, like our families, the dent we want to make in the universe. Like we have very little time to be tracking other people's success and failures and goals. And, and to think that that could be something that could keep us from living our best life. That could keep you from becoming the person that you were created to be and doing the thing in the world that only you can do because of your unique perspective and story and experience. And to think that other people's opinions could keep you from that when it's just like, oh, that's kind of a story that you're telling yourself that that many people are watching you even, you know, like you're not Oprah, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like you're just like, you're not. Uh, And that's something that I remind myself of so much of like, am I going to let this fictitious they that I'm trying to impress and keep myself from failing or embarrassing myself, keep me from doing the thing that I was made to do. And of course the answer is no. 
It's that thing, isn't it? Of sometimes having to check in with yourself and saying, my thoughts are not real. Like my thoughts are not fact. And I can create a narrative in my head of, oh, I mean, look, we're all on social media. I might think, oh, I'm going to put that post up and so-and-so will think I'm an idiot. And then I think, well, they might not see it. And even if they do, I don't care. Other people's opinions, they're not, they're not our business. And here's the thing. There's a lot of value in feedback, right? Like we also don't want to be people that were like, I'm going to, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm not going to listen to anybody along the way. I actually also don't think that that's a great place to be right. Because there's a lot of gold in people's feedback. It's the power that you give it. And it's, it's your ability. Like we each have autonomy to say, okay, I received feedback. Is it valuable? Is it relevant? Does this person have all the information that they need? Like having an open heart and open mind to like, maybe I did miss Mark on that, or maybe there is something for me to learn there. And just like a willingness to be curious and to change and to pivot and to iterate. But that is also so different than giving those people the power and saying like, you have power over me, you get to decide. Um, and I will make decisions based off of what I think your feedback towards me is going to be. And I think ultimately so much of that, and honestly, Emma, I'm preaching to myself right now, like 10 years in, it's still, this is still a daily struggle of mine is to remind myself of just like, all of it is solved with curiosity, like all of it. If we can address our critic, like the people who criticize us, instead of just completely blocking it out or instead of letting it us devastate us, if we can just address it with a sense of curiosity of like, is there something there for me? And if there is, thank you. And if there isn't blessings, you may go on your way, you know, of just like, um, maintaining a sense of curiosity and really destigmatizing failure, growth and evolution, that it's like, it's okay to admit you're wrong. And actually wouldn't the world be an amazing place if it was filled with people that were like, Oh, I received new information. Huh? I'm going to think about that. I'm going to go back and I'm going to combine that with my beliefs and my values and the other information that I have. And then I'm going to come to a conclusion and it might be a new conclusion. It might be the same conclusion, but like we there's so much shame around admitting that you might have been wrong or you might have missed the mark um, that it keeps us from doing that. And so a lot of us, we just dig in our heels, right? And it's just like, we just dig in our heels and we stay there and we protect our position. Um, and I think when we just choose a sense of curiosity, not only does it does it help us progress and evolve and, f- and figure out who we are and build interesting things in the world, it's also just like a more fun way to be a human, I think. <laughs> And it just puts so much pressure on yourself. I completely agree with you about admitting that you've made a mistake. I had, um, I think we can all relate to that idea of maybe having a conversation with someone, realizing you've screwed up, but digging your heels in. And actually there's so much in just saying, actually, I, I completely missed that or I screwed up. And I try really hard to do that now because actually it, mean, it means you shake off the negativity and the pressure around whatever that conversation or interaction might be. Do you find that if you just own it and just move on? There is so much freedom. Yes, I do. And I will say, I still, when I get negative feedback, my physiological response to it is still the same. It's shame. I just get flooded with shame. My heart starts to beat fast. I sweat. My face gets red. I might get angry. Like I just, I'm, I'm my immediate reaction is why they're wrong, right? Like you, what you don't have the full picture, like you're misreading a situation. That's still my gut reaction. So please don't hear me being like, I'm this like Zen (laughs) human that can just like, it still sucks. If when you miss the mark, when you make a mistake, when you do something that had an unintended, you know, consequence, it's that, that sucks. And I don't know, I, I don't know if I'll ever, be in a place in my life where my immediate reaction isn't that. But to your point, what we get to do and where we have autonomy, there's a difference between your reaction to something. That's what your body does. That's like immediately where your brain goes. That's how you start spiraling. That's your physiological response to something. But what we have control over is our, is our response. So we have our reaction that sometimes we don't feel totally in control of. And then we have our response. That's what do we actually do with those feelings? What are the words that we say? Do we take 
a beat? Do we take a breath? Um, and absolutely when we do that, it releases so much of the power and the shame because we're also releasing that narrative that I have to be perfect. And I'm someone who doesn't mess up. Um, and we're owning it. And I really think that that gives other people then the freedom to do the same. Totally. And I'm curious to know how you feel about things that you're triggered by, because uh, I had a guest on the podcast earlier this year who talked about if you are triggered by something, say it's an email from someone and it's negative feedback, run towards it, run towards the thing you don't like about it. Is there an element of truth there that you need to address? Have they actually hit the nail on the head a little bit and that's what you don't like? Or are they being rude? They're two very different things. Yeah. And then you, and then whatever you do with that, the thing you take away from it is the thing that you can use to your advantage. So mm-hmm. and his whole thing was run towards the things that trigger you because they will get smaller and they will then empower you essentially. Mm, that's really good. And I think for me, sometimes I need help discerning that. That's where I think community mentorship really, um, is so important because there are times where I, I'm too triggered or I'm too, I'm spiraling and I'm too in my own shame that I can't see clearly. And sometimes it can be really helpful to bring someone else into that. That's a trusted person that knows you, um, that, that knows your vision for how you want to live life that can, that can speak to that. And that you can kind of say, okay, I'm really struggling to figure out where the truth in this is, where I need to lean in and what is just unnecessary or mean or critical, like, you know, naysayer stuff from, from the, from the cheap seats. Um, (laughs) and having someone that you really trust to be able to say, speak to this in me, like, is this something that you experience? being in relationship with me and, and giving people the opportunity to speak into that, um, and to kind of help you help you discern. And so it's really important to me to surround myself with people. I don't want just a hype squad. That's just going to say, no, they suck. Anybody that says anything, you know, like they're stupid. I also don't want to be surrounded by people that are like, yeah, every negative thing that people say about you is very true (laughs) because you like, but being, being with people that, you know, love you, that care about you, that value you, but that love you enough to give you hard feedback, but to do that out of a sense of like love, you know, and like, we love you. We adore you. Um, but yeah, this might be a little bit, this, you might be a little short-sighted in this area. And I've experienced that, um, again, it's all painful, but that's like, that's how also we stay in relationship. Right. Because I think it's like community and relationship is so important. And if we can't hear that, and if we can't evolve and if we can't listen, we also can't ultimately like have, I think the type of intimacy and community that I, that I really do deeply believe we were all created for. I want to um, go back to talk about passion because I do feel as though that's something that we've all, maybe it's uh, a rod far own back that just culturally we've all had this idea that you must have a passion. It's almost as if we're all Harry Potter who one day someone's going to come and tell us that we're a wizard and that we've had all this talent <laughs> the whole time and everything's going to be all right. And actually we're the most powerful wizard that has ever lived and blah, blah, blah. And that's not actually the truth. I love this. <laughs> I love this idea of building your passion. So if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I don't have that strong feeling that one thing is my passion, but I also maybe right now, want to change where I am and move forward in a way that feels like I'm moving somewhere towards it. What are your stepping stones to building a passion? What are the questions that you ask yourself? Yeah. I start out with asking the question of like, you don't need to know what you're passionate about. How about we start with this? What are five things you're kind of interested in? Like when you've got five minutes of downtime and where does your brain just kind of naturally like flit to, um, you know, when you open up your phone or your computer, like, is there something you're just naturally gravitating information that you're just like naturally gravitating towards? Um, I think when, as soon as we change it from what are you passionate about to what are you interested in one, it allows you to answer that question with a handful of things, right? Like, Oh, I'm interested in dozens of things that might not be passionate about it. And that is, that's really kind of like a key question that really lowers the stakes that it's like the thing that you're interested in might end up becoming something that you're passionate about, but you, you don't start out passionate about anything. The word passion, um, is from the Latin word pati, 
And the word pati means to suffer for. Um, so here's this word that in modern culture, it's only fluffy and it's only bright and it's only inspirational and it's find your passion and be passionate and live your passion. And, um, and yet, isn't it interesting that this word that we're talking about actually has like this root meaning of like, no, actually passion is something that over time you become when you suffer for something, when you experience failure and rejection and your own, as we were talking about your own ego and, and dying to that and all of these like more difficult parts about being, becoming fully human, um, and in staying with something long enough to suck at it, to get rejected, to face embarrassments, to continue and to come out on the other side of that and say, this is still a worthy cause. I'm, I still want to bring this thing into the world. That is how passion is built. It's not a mystical Harry Potter thing that comes and is bestowed upon you. It actually is like when you're interested in something, when you do the thing, when you experiment, when you stay at it, over time, you can build a passion for a thing, but you do not start with it. And so when we put so much emphasis on passion from the get-go, find your passion and then go live it out, it's completely backwards. It's actually like do something that you're interested in. Um, and, and my belief is really like do something that's going to make the world a little bit better, not just for yourself, like, but for somebody else. Um, and if you can combine those two things, I'm interested in it. And I could see how this would actually make the world a little better and brighter, not just for myself, but for others. And then go with it and see where it takes you. And over time, you can build passion. And there's also this idea of uh, passion as a thing that makes you a living, the thing that earns you money. Like where does the, in the Venn diagram, should they exist together? Should there be crossover? That is a great question. And I think my answer to it is that there's no answer to that one. Um, you know, I had on my podcast, Liz Gilbert was one of my guests and she wrote, you know, eat, pray, love. And it was this, you know, wild success. And she's this really talented writer and she has a perspective that's pretty far on the spectrum of you shouldn't don't ask your passion to pay your bills. Um, because once you do that, the amount of pressure that you put on your art, on your craft, on your passion or your interest, like it's, she believes that it's kind of this unfair burden, um, to put on your passion and that it should be able to live without being the way it supports you. So for many years, it was like, she worked as a waitress and her passion was writing. Now she's had a unicorn experience of, you know, one of her books becoming like this wild global bestseller and big motion picture and the whole deal. So now definitely her passion pays, pays her bills, but she, so that was her perspective. I would say, um, but my experience is very different. Like my passion is my vocation. It's what I spend 50 hours a week doing and thinking about. It's totally integrated with my whole life. Um, and I think that there are a lot of benefits to that as well. But when Liz talks about her perspective, I'm also like, I can see the value in that. Um, and so I think there's actually probably more benefit to, I don't know. I think the answer to that is that that that's too, it's too dependent on you, on what your passion is, on who you were created to be. Um, and I think for each of us, we have to answer that question. And I think there being a sense of freedom of like, both are okay. Like if you are building your passion and it, and you're like, this will never pay the bills. There's so much beauty and validity to that. And I want you to hear me say like, you could, for you could never earn a dollar off of that thing. And that could be a beautiful part of your life, of your legacy. Like if that feels right, keep going. And if there's an inkling in you that you're just like, no, I want this to be integrated into my whole life. Um, there's a lot of beauty and value in that. And listen to that, listen to that whisper, because there is no right answer. I don't think when it comes to, to whether or not we can integrate our passion to our vocation and how we actually pay the bills. And in your journey, so you have Seiko, so you yeah. have your sandals. There's a great story listeners that you must find about you being locked in a shoe factory. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Not for two days over the weekend, but, yeah. um, there so you have that which definitely came out of saying of interrogating this idea of I say I'm passionate about this but what am I really doing so mm -hmm. that comes out of it then you become 
a speaker, a presenter, and all of these other pillars. Yeah. So at what point during this journey were you able to, was the original pillar of Seiko and what you were doing and what you were passionate about, what you identified as your passion, when did that pillar become strong enough to then sustain something else and then something else and something else? What a great question. Um, many years. I was singularly focused on Seiko for many, many, many years. Speaking even to me, speaking, communicating, presenting, all of that served the, the ultimate concern, which was getting Seiko up and off the ground, getting it, scaling it, making it profitable, um, scaling our impact. Everything that I said yes to from a professional standpoint was to kind of serve that ultimate goal. Now there are lots of, they're kind of more solopreneurs that really are like that, you know, they refer to themselves as multi-passionate and they've got from the get-go have their different things that they're doing. And I think that's a, I think that's a fine way to go about it. I, I am biased towards picking a lane, staying in it and just really focusing on like, from a personal perspective, what that requires of you and the work that you're doing to stick with something through the ebbs and through the flows, um, I think is really powerful. I think I've changed and grown a lot. Um, I think especially in our generation where we're pretty accustomed to like jumping, we do the next thing. Um, I don't think that's inherently bad, but I do think we have to be wary of, am I jumping because I'm uncomfortable and because, um, because I'm experiencing it's harder than I thought it would be, or I experience failure and I don't want to have to like sit in that, you know, so I'm just going to jump over to this thing and pretend I didn't really care about that. So, um, for me, it was many, many, many years. I would probably say, so my, I started Seiko over 10 years ago. Um, and it's been from a vocational perspective, it's been my main thing. And it hasn't been until probably the last three years, I would say I've given myself the freedom to spend more time and energy pursuing different avenues, um, all that kind of support that main higher goal of um, making the world better through creating community and opportunity <laughs> um, and helping other people do the same. But it was a long time where it was just like, this is my one thing. This is the thing that I'm going to that I'm going to focus and go all in on. One of the, when you were telling the story earlier about um, telling the story through the lens of it having succeeded, it made me think of walking down a flight of stairs and in, when you were actually doing it in real time, you didn't know where that next step was going to be. But when you're telling the story, you knew exactly where that step was going to be. So it was much more sure-footed. And I'm curious as well about how yes and no have played into your particular journey because I think when we make mistakes and they're controlled burns and we appreciate them you get very good at saying no but yeah. actually actually I think that there's so much power in just saying yes to as much as possible and I just wonder because you talked about saying yes a minute ago I just wonder about the role of yes and no in how you work Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so I have, a, I have a chapter in my book called Very Important Promises, VIPs. <laughs> and it's really all about exercising your no muscle, um, really saying like, hey, these are my values. These are the things that I care about during this season of life. And they can and should change, you know, during different seasons of life. But this is what my primary concern is. And then filtering every opportunity through this lens and asking yourself, does this serve one of my four very important promises that I've made during this season of life? Can I directly say that this will go to serve that? Um, because so often we just get busy. We say yes to so many things. We chase stuff without really knowing like why we're doing it, if there's a belief behind it. Um, and so I really do think that being focused is important. That being said, I also think this is kind of a season of life thing. Where are you in your business building, in your passion building, in your life building? I think once you know what your ultimate concern is and what you're doing, then that focus becomes so important. There will be a season where just saying yes to everything, I think is a remarkable posture. When my husband and I, who's my co-founder, we, I moved back from Uganda. We got married like four months later he quit his job. We, you know, lived out of our Honda element and traveled the United States for a year trying to launch this brand. On that trip, 
we had a rule where we literally said, unless it is illegal or it goes against our morals, we will say yes to every invitation, to every opportunity. We are going into this season of life saying yes. And we're not asking that question because we were in the, we were just building. We were in the beginning and we were like, what is this thing? Who are we? What are we doing? And we're like, wouldn't it be fun to have a year of yes? And Emma, I will tell you, we got ourselves in some funny situations (laughs) where we would just look at each other and be like, what are we doing? Like, how did we get here? Why are we here? And it was so fun. It was so life-giving. It was so adventurous. We learned so much about who we are, what we care about, made so many interesting connections, learned so much about the business, learned so much about ourselves because we had that posture of yes, um, that I think had we gone into that season being way more structured, we would have missed out on a lot. So I think a lot of it is just knowing like, where are you in the journey? And I think if you're earlier on in the journey, there's something so valuable about a willingness to just explore, a willingness to try and fail, to say yes to that invitation or to that opportunity, even if you don't quite know how it all fits in. Um, because I, I think that's where we, that, that spirit of curiosity and experimentation and the freedom that comes with that is actually really, really helpful to building up that kind of energy and momentum that you need on, on your building journey. I, I totally agree with you. And I do believe, um, as Jane Fonda famously said, that no is a complete sentence. But I worked with a few brands as a consultant a couple of years ago, and they were big, big, huge brands. And because they've been around for a long time, because they were super successful, they had a very quick reflex to know, no, we've done that before. We know it won't work. No, that definitely won't work. And it was making their horizon incredibly narrow. Yeah. And actually... I wonder, I know you talk about early on having that posture of yes, but maybe down the line when you think you know it all, is there also scope for kind of opening up that window and interrogating why you started saying no and maybe looking for solutions around it to make the world a bit bigger? Yes, that is such a good point. And my book, Beginner's Pluck, the, the, even the title of Beginner's Pluck is this idea of how do we even further down the line in our careers and our journeys and our lives, when we get into that, like, oh, we kind of know what we're doing. How do you actually channel your inner beginner is kind of the premise of the book um, so that you stay alive and awake to those opportunities, to those yeses, to that sense that we don't have it all figured out. One of the things that I talk about in the book, a really practical thing that I do in my personal life and that I do in my business is that we at our company, we have this thing, this kind of culture of wow. So we will have, I'm actually going to one, um, (laughs) checking my calendar right now to make sure it starts at 10 and not nine. Okay. I'm good. Um, we have, we have these meetings that are on the calendar that are called magic wand meetings. And so like I have a magic wand meeting with my, my team today. And it's about our big sales summit that we're going to do next year um, in 2021. So it's like kind of our first initial planning meeting that we're going to do. And a magic wand meeting is a very special kind of meeting. You come into the meeting with a sense of wonder, with a sense of possibility, with a sense of curiosity. A team member will say, if I had a magic wand, And then they just get to say whatever, like whatever is in their imagination, whatever would make it so cool, so rad. You don't think about, do we have the money? Have we tried it before and it failed? How do we know it's not going to work? You know, like all of those like things that we're so quick to shoot down new ideas with. None of that applies. You just put out the like, if I had a magic wand, this would happen at our sales summit next year. And then everyone in the room has to look at you. And has to kind of lean in after you say your, your idea and has to go, wow, (laughs) whether or not, like it can just be so absurd, but what that does is it creates a sense of possibility. It creates a sense of like, Hey, we can sit in the wow and the wonder a little bit before we immediately go to solving the problem, to saying why it can't work, to asking where the budget's going to come from. And of course, the vast majority of those first ideas, the magic wand ideas, you know, like, whoa, if I had a magic wand, like Beyonce would be performing at our sales summit, like likelihood that that happens very low. But what you do then as a team is then you can kind of work backwards and say, okay, what's the spirit of why you think that that would be awesome? And how can we get really creative about how we could create that in a different way? And it just kind of, it just breaks that 
to your exact point, it breaks that sense of routine and that almost like hardness and muscle that we can build to know. And it just, it just create, it just breaks the energy and creates like this sense of kind of wonder and possibility, but you have to, you have to be intentional about that. I don't think teams, I don't think, I think our natural process over time is to become hardened to possibility, to wonder, to those ideas. So as leaders, as creators, as people, as individuals, as parents, whatever it is, I really do believe that you have to build in those practices and be really intentional about how you continue to cultivate a sense of wonder and possibility. Now, speaking of spreading wonder and possibility, you did start your own podcast which is, as you mentioned, you had Liz Gilbert on the show. And I'm curious how, uh, what, what's been, what's inspired you? Obviously you had Liz on, what have you learned from your podcast so far? Because it's, how old is the show now? Oh gosh, we launched, I think we're about 20 ish episodes in Mm. maybe. So it's still, it's still relatively new. So this year it's like a, this was a 2020 project. So exciting. It's so, oh my gosh, it is such a gift. You know, the purpose of the show is that we interview wildly quote unquote successful people, authors, speakers, podcasters, um, entrepreneurs, business people all across the board. The only qualification is like, you're, you are successful. People look at you and are like, oh, you made it. And a lot of what we do really honestly, similar to your show, Emma is get behind the scenes of, of the runway period take us back, tell us how it probably wasn't a straight line, how, you know, like how Hagrid didn't visit you in the middle of the night and tell you that you were a wizard, that you actually just got out there and you experimented and you tried and you failed. But the other key part of the show and why the show is called plucking up is we really, we ask every single guest to tell us a story about a specific pluck up, a specific moment in time a specific mistake, rejection, embarrassment, something that they experienced in their career that did not make the highlight reel. And then we dive into it. And I ask like the questions of like, tell us like going back to the response first reaction, like what was your reaction? What's your shame story? How bad did it feel? How did you move through that? And really my hope for the show is that we destigmatize that, right? That it's like, you're never going to read that on that person's biography page, that moment where they made a big mistake in their business, or, you know, like they really regret having done that, or this was a really challenging season. Um, but and, and, and just to create this like library of stories for people so that when they're in it, when they're in the midst of the big rejection the big failure, the big embarrassment, the thing that makes them go to bed that night and they can't turn their brain off because they're thinking this is the end. I can't undo that. I'm never going to overcome that. My hope is that they have this whole library of stories that it's like, oh, but remember when that happened to Liz Gilbert and remember when Ariana Huffington experienced that, you know, season of rejection and failure and, um, to help us just like normalize it. And remember that like, we're all in this together. If, if you're experiencing massive pluckups, that actually probably means that you're trying to do something really interesting um, and that you're getting out of your comfort zone. So like stay in it and we're rooting for you. And uh, we're, we're all having that shared experience. You're not alone in that. It's so funny because I interviewed celebrities for many years for magazines and there would not all the time, but a lot of the time there would be the don't ask about part of the, before you go in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always, I'm like, I'm respectful, but equally like, oh, it'd be so much more real if we just talked about that time that I don't know. Sure. And I like, I won't interview folks on my show if they're not willing to share a pluck up. And it's like, if you want to come on here and just tell us about all the shiny, happy things that have happened to you, there's another show that I'm sure would be willing to have you. Um, And it doesn't have to be the biggest thing or the most controversial thing. Like sometimes, oftentimes we have folks share about a parent, you know, a, 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 famous author share about a a hard parenting moment that they just had two weeks ago. It can be all across the spectrum. 
Um, but it has to be real and it has to be something that makes other people go like, oh yeah, I, you know, I may not be running a billion dollar business and have experienced that, but I have experienced that emotion that that caused and to help create that sense of like, we're all humans. We're all just trying to figure it out. We're all like the best that we can do is to stay curious and to stay empathetic and to keep kind of marching in the general direction of true North. I have loved this conversation. I honestly could talk to you. I could talk to you for hours, but it's your birthday. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's my birthday. What a, what a way to start out my birthday with Emma. And I need to let you go to your magic wand meeting, but, um, I've learned so much and I think your story is so valuable and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. And obviously listeners, the links to plucking up the podcast, I'm going to get the names wrong. The podcast is plucking up. The book is beginners pluck. Yep. And I will put your social media channels and everything in the show notes, but Liz, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thank you so much, Emma. It was a delight and joy. And I loved this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Liz and me. If you would like to email me, I'd be delighted to hear from you. You can do so at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. You can also DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns. Or if you want to chat to me and thousands of other listeners of this show, then you can click the link in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and join the Facebook forum. Just click the link, answer a couple of questions and agree to the forum rules. Please agree to those rules. Otherwise I can't let you in. I can't do one rule for some and none for the others. So please do agree to all of those rules and um, answer some questions and I'd be so glad to see you in there and you can join the very many varied discussions we are having in that group right now thank you so much for listening I will see you on the next one when you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year 100,000 mile limited warranty you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.